You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Acts chapter 11, we remember that in chapter 10, we had the monumental moment of Peter preaching the gospel unfiltered to the Gentile world for the very first time. Peter has now come to the understanding that God shows no partiality and that the gospel is not something to receive after receiving Judaism, but apart from Judaism. He's starting to understand and realize that Christ had come to unite all things to himself and to create a new humanity. Now, after staying there in Caesarea for a time with Cornelius and his friends and family, making disciples, teaching them for a little while, it says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So word had gotten out that the Gentiles, quote, had also received the word of God. And a certain group, of Jews in Jerusalem called the circumcision party. In other words, they believed that you had to convert to Judaism, which would have led to circumcision, the rite of circumcision. They believed that you had to receive Judaism before you received Christ. Their accusation of Peter was, you went to them and you ate with them. It's fascinating. That is their big criticism. It wasn't necessarily that he preached to them, but that he went to them and he ate with them. Now, to eat with them meant a lot to them in their era more than it would to us in our era. To eat with them meant acceptance and fellowship. And so they were blown away, flabbergasted, that Peter had gone to eat and drink with these uncircumcised men. They they felt that is accepting them, that is being in fellowship with them, They had gotten their eyes off of the cross of Christ. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So Peter just goes and he is now going to recount the, you know, events of chapter 10. Now, the fascinating thing is that Luke is going to record the events again. He could have just simply said, Peter told them all that happened there in Caesarea, but what we're going to have in the next few verses is a, a reaccounting of what happened there in Caesarea. And the reason that that's significant is because Luke is not writing on a word processor, on a computer with unlimited space. He has a limited amount of scroll space to work with, yet he sees that this is so important that he wants to record this event again. It's that massive. Now, notice as we go through this, how many times and in how many ways Peter demonstrates that this was God confirming his will in him going to Caesarea. In other words, Peter's trying to say, this was not my idea. This was all God's doing. This was all God's idea. And I'll try to simply point that out as I read through this passage. 
He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Well, there you go. He's saying, I was in a spiritual mindset. I was crying out to God and praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. So this is, again, from God. God gave him a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it, verse 6, closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice, so again, this is God, God's voice, saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. So again, God has done this. God has made clean. We cannot call them common. This happened three times. So God, you know, gave this vision three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, verse 11, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me so the holy spirit is involved these men are involved at the direction of god the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction these six brothers also accompanied me so these witnesses and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house so again god sent an angel and the angel said send a joppa and bring simon who is called peter he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. So again, God did this, not me. Fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. Not the word of Peter, but the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way. So again, Peter is attempting in this recounting to say God did this. He's explaining the way God confirmed this entire episode to have come completely from him that his divine authorship of this event was indisputable. Now when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This recounting, this story, this event had a major impact on the church. It misaligned them with Judaism, but preserved the unity of the church. And they say and confess, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So now the standard belief is that the gospel message is for the Gentile world. Now, they're still going to have to wrestle with the implications of that and the follow-up teaching for these Gentiles. But for this moment, they are now confessing this is something that God has done. God has broken open the gospel message to the Gentile world. Peter has used the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, and the Gentiles are now able to be full-fledged believers in the body of Jesus Christ within the church. Now, those who were scattered, verse 19, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 
Now, at this point, Luke is going to turn his attention to the church in Antioch. And what he explains is that way back when Stephen was persecuted and killed and persecution began to hit the Jewish church, they spread throughout the world. They went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. That's how far they went at that time. And they did preach the gospel, but only to the Jews. There were some who, when they went to Antioch, spoke to Hellenists also. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So now we have this new city being mentioned where the gospel is gaining traction, the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the empire after Rome and Alexandria. And part of the reason that Luke is mentioning it here is because it is going to become really, in a lot of ways, the new center, the new missionary center, especially for Christianity. And just as through Peter's preaching, the gospel has now shifted from, you know, predominantly, if not exclusively Jewish, to now being available to the Gentiles, now there's going to be a shift that takes place as well. Jerusalem will never lose its importance, but there is going to be a shift, and the church in Antioch is going to gain great prominence. Now, so he tells us that there were a great number there who believed. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the Jerusalem church didn't ignore the work of God there in Antioch, but they didn't send apostles either. They just sent Barnabas, who was a great brother, an encourager. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. That is such a beautiful statement, to be able to see the grace of God. You see that God is working. You see that God is moving. You see that God is changing lives. And when he saw it, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That was Barnabas's ministry, to exhort, to encourage them, to be faithful to the Lord. He was an encourager. He was a comforter. And he was full of the Spirit and faith. And he just went and there in Antioch just built up that new church. So Barnabas, in verse 25, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You know, Barnabas is such a, an amazing man because when he went to Antioch initially and saw the grace of God, saw that God was moving, you know, he did what he could do. He exhorted, he encouraged, he did some teaching, and it was fruitful. But with great humility in his heart, he knew that he needed help in this brand new venture and work. And he knew that Saul, who at this point had been living in Tarsus, uh, would be a great help and aid to the work of the Lord in Antioch. So he goes and with humility brings Paul into the ministry. And 
they are there for a year just meeting with and teaching the church. And it was apparently effective because it was there in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians, which means belonging to the party of Jesus Christ or Christ-likeness. Now, this title is only going to be used two more times in the New Testament, but it was first used there. They were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, Agabus is going to be mentioned later, and so this is very similar to Luke's style, where he'll mention a figure earlier in his book and then have a longer section about him later on in the same book. So he does that about Agabus, and Agabus is a prophet. He's from Jerusalem, a Jewish prophet. He comes up there, uh, goes north to Antioch, and he begins to prophesy. Now, it seems that Agabus had the office of a prophet. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of of the ministry. There is also a gift of prophecy, which is to be used for the edification and exhortation and comfort of fellow believers. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 declared that the gift of prophecy is the kind of gift that every believer should want to have. But the gift of prophecy, edifying, exhorting, encouraging, is far different from the office of the prophet. And Agabus had that kind of position. I think sometimes in our modern era, we might not have people that we would name so much as prophets. We tend to lean away from that. But sometimes pastors or church leaders or Christian authors or professors, they might be called author or pastor or guest speaker or lecturer or professor or apologist. But a lot of times I think they are operating in a prophetic ministry kind of mode. Now, Agabus came, and his prophetic ministry was a foretelling kind of ministry in that he foretold that there'd be a great famine all over the world around that time. And history shows us that this did take place during Claudius's reign, who oversaw the empire from 41 to 54 AD. There were several severe famines that struck various regions during his reign. So the charitable thing to do in response for the Antioch church was to send a gift to the Jerusalem elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And with that, you're binding the two churches together, Antioch and Jerusalem. No longer will there be maybe suspicion one of the other because of their differences racially for the most part. But then also you have this interesting thing where a predominantly Gentile church is caring for and ministering to a predominantly Jewish church. Now, before we see the further development of the church in Antioch, Luke takes us back to 
of the church in Jerusalem. And at this point, in chapter 12 of Acts, we are sitting at around A.D. 44, about 12 years after Pentecost. Uh, Herod died, according to Josephus, in A.D. 44. So we know, as Acts 12 relates to us the details of Herod's death, that this is about A.D. 44. Now, about that time, Herod the king, verse 1, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, Herod the king is Herod Agrippa I, and he was popular to a degree because he was partly Jewish. Uh, He was the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who killed the children in Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth. And later in the book of Acts, Paul will actually go on trial before this Herod's children, uh, Herod Agrippa II and his daughter Bernice. Herod, though, begins to persecute the church himself. No longer is this religious Jewish persecution, but this is now political persecution. And he lays hands on the church, and the church was a group that was clearly identifiable to him at this time. Not just a group of Jewish people, but a separate group of Jewish people. And his way of persecuting the church was to kill James, the brother of John. This means that we have the first apostle to be martyred for the faith. The the first apostle to die. James uh, being the first, and then John Uh, being the last. Now, James was one of Christ's or in Christ's inner circle, uh, along with his brother John and with Peter. And a mere decade into his ministry, his life comes here to an abrupt end. You might recall that during his earthly ministry, James and John were attempting to get Jesus to let him sit at his right and left hand when he came into his glory. They even got the help of their mother in trying to secure those positions. And Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And it is interesting that James and John, their deaths bookend the deaths of all of the apostles, James first and John last. Sort of that, you know, sitting at the right and left hand of the cup that Christ drank. And, you know, Christ knew and prepared James for that decade of ministry. You know, the truth is we have no idea when our lives are going to end, and James was no different. And he fell under the persecution of Herod. And when Herod, verse 3, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Herod begins treating the church this way because it's politically expedient for him to do so. He's basically asking the question, in order to advance my political agenda, how should I treat the church? And he'll do whatever he has to do to gain political, to curry political favor. Now, this is the tactic of so many people, politicians and not, 
to just look around and say, what are the attitudes and morals that I should embrace in order to receive popularity and acceptance? Now, his intention was to kill Peter during the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the church, they really began to pray. It's possible that they really had not prayed like this for James. It's possible that because of the previous times that God had released the apostles from their captivity, and because no apostle had yet been killed for his faith, it's possible that some in the church thought, if not all of them thought, that the apostles were invincible. But after James's death, that they then responded by praying for Peter once he was arrested. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter is there. He's sleeping. He is the one who taught us to cast all our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. And so Peter seems to be doing that, casting his cares upon the Lord. There he is just sleeping, trusting the Lord. He might have believed that this would be the end of his life. He knew that he was going to have a death that came by way of persecution. Jesus had talked to him about that in John chapter 21. But there he is in between these two soldiers with two chains, sentries who were guarding the prison, just this apostle, this religious, spiritual man. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. So this is the second time that an angel has helped Peter escape prison. We saw this happen earlier in Acts chapter 5, but he interpreted this one to be a vision. He, he just didn't realized that God was actually rescuing him. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Well, this seems like a fantastic story in one sense. And, you know, almost seems fanciful in the, in the sense with angels opening up the gates and all of that. But I think that in the subterranean space of man's mind, there's an understanding that there is more to this world than just what we can see. And Peter is living in that moment, living in that world for a moment as this angel comes and, and unleashes him. And so he announces, I've been rescued. You know, I've been rescued. The, the gospel is going to go forward in spite of this opposition. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary 
the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. Now here, Luke is introducing another character for us. He's introducing John Mark. And his mom was the owner of this home where they were gathered together. She was a woman of means. Her house had become a principal meeting place for the church. Uh, This John Mark is considered the author of the book of Mark. And so Luke just gives a little mention of him because he'll be a figure later on in the book of Acts. And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, this is a humorous moment because Peter's knocking at the door. Rhoda hears his voice, runs back in, doesn't open the gate and says, Peter's here. And it's also humorous because there they are praying for Peter, and we assume praying for his release. She says, he's been released, and they say, you're out of your mind. So, some faith. It is worth mentioning that some people think that the difference between James's story and Peter's story is that no one prayed for James, and people prayed for Peter. And that had they prayed for James, he would have been released like Peter had been released. But I think it's worth stating or at least pointing out that their faith didn't seem to be all that big in the first place. But I think it's also worth mentioning that God is sovereign. And he had a plan for James's life that was different from the plan that he had for Peter's life. These two men were not called to run the same exact race. And we do not know whether God's you know, what what God's plan is for every single human being on the face of the earth. Apparently, James had run his race completely. And apparently, Peter was not yet finished with his race. I think we need to move past the age of comparison and looking at each other's lives and saying, I want that race or I want his race, rather than saying, I'm just going to run the race that God has given to me. Now, it is interesting that they say it is not Peter, but it is his angel. This suggests a belief in personal angels at that time assigned to individuals. The New Testament doesn't teach us really about that through the rest of the New Testament, but Luke seems to be showing us a perspective that they had at that time. Jesus did say in Matthew chapter 18 that not to despise little children. He said, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. And that's where we get the idea of a guardian angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when Peter says that to James and his brothers, he's talking about now James, the half-brother of Christ, who was becoming a central figure there in the Jerusalem church. He'd eventually write the book of James. He had previously not believed in his brother, but now had become a believer in Christ. And Jesus had appeared to him in his resurrected state, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 
So Peter then departs. He, he's not going to risk it, and he goes to another place. We don't know where he went. Luke is not concerned. He might have gone to Asia Minor. 1 Peter 1 verse 1 hints at that, that he knew the believers in that part of the world. We know that he eventually traveled to Antioch, Galatians 2 verse 11, to visit Paul. And Paul actually referred to Peter's itinerant ministry, where he actually took along his wife and went throughout the world doing ministry. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Uh, Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So the citizens of Tyre and Sidon gathered together. They needed Herod to give them political favor because they depended upon him for food. And so they have a feast, and Herod sits on his throne, and he gives them a speech. Josephus says they had a feast together, And this probably took place, the oration at least, in a theater there in Caesarea, which is they've excavated even today. It's just a beautiful setting. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. They shouted to, to, to Herod words of pure flattery designed for their good, not Herod's, to get his favor. But it was the ruin of him because this was an ungodly ambition. God struck this man down in, in, in the midst of this pride where he's receiving the worship of man. And it's indicative of God's attitude and future judgment. He doesn't strike down every pride-filled man or woman. But in striking down Herod, he shows every pride-filled man or woman the judgment that is coming and how seriously he takes that thought or belief that we are God and that we have self-made ourselves. But in contrast to the stopping of Herod, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service there in Antioch, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, who we saw previously that the church had been meeting in his mother's house. And so Luke gives us this last or another progress report where he's telling us the gospel, the word of God, increased and multiplied. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.